0: Okay, turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 6. If you're visiting with us, um, we have been walking uh, day by day through the life of Christ as it's presented to us in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, looking at the events of his life and his ministry there and uh, asking the question, what does this teach us uh, about who he is and what he's come to do? So that's a pretty basic structure for what we've been doing. And we've chosen that structure and we've read it with that intent simply because I think that is the intent of the Gospel of Mark. I think that's what it was written for, is to give us a picture of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And what we've learned is that he is the king uh, and that he has come to be the king of his people. And so his kingdom has come and uh, we are invited to be a part of that kingdom. We are up to Mark chapter 6. If you remember, we, we read last week the very... A familiar account of Jesus feeding the thousands of people that were there—five thousand men, probably women and children—with him uh, as he gives the bread to his disciples and they break it. Uh, so they—they they have been, uh, for for lack of a better term or phrase, I guess, as we would say, they've been on the mountaintop with Christ. Uh, that they have just experienced one of the greatest miracles uh, that that the world has ever seen. They have been had their had their minds blown by the Lord and. Uh, they, they have been on the mountaintop, but what we're going to see is that very quickly, uh, in, in the story, uh, for the life of the disciples, uh, those that walk with Jesus and love him and know him intimately, what we're going to see is that you can go from the mountaintop to the valley very quickly. And uh, I actually think that is part of God's providence and plan for us. And I think that he does that for good reason. And we're going to see that this morning. So let's just turn right to the text. We're going to begin reading in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and we will read down through the end of the chapter. Before we read, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, our gracious God and Redeemer, we pray that you would give us grace this morning to have eyes to see, have ears to hear, Lord, give us minds and hearts to understand the truth of your word. We pray simply that by the power of your spirit and his ministry among us today that you would open us and implant your word within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of the Gennesaret, and they anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that he might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. So uh, we continue. Uh, Jesus continues. His disciples continue. But uh, again, they have gone from just moments ago, being on the mountaintop with Jesus, miraculously through them feeding thousands and thousands of people, uh, very quickly to the valley. Um, and so I want you to see that this is not new as we've studied this gospel account of Mark, as we've studied this life of Jesus and his ministry. Uh, this should be somewhat of a pattern. It seems to go up and down. You know, the disciples seem to be in a really good place and then they seem to be really struggling. And so um, as they have walked with Christ, this pattern seems to emerge. But alas, they are in trouble again. Uh, and, and no less on a boat, Right? Um, and so the first thing that I want you to see, we're, we're just going to look, I'm, I'm going to give you points, it may not be the best outline this morning, but I'm going to give you points as we walk through this that point us to certain aspects or parts of the text this morning that I'm going to try to draw out some conclusions for you. The first point is that we need to see that Jesus sends his disciples away out on a boat. So they are last in trouble again, and it is on a boat. We've seen this before. When they crossed over the Sea of Galilee, the same place where they are, they got into a huge thunderstorm. They got into a hurricane. This is the account, remember, where Jesus was sleeping because he was tired from all the ministry that he had done. He was sleeping in the hull of the boat, down in the belly of the boat. And they came to him and said, Lord, why... Why are you not caring that we are fixing to perish? We are dying and you are sleeping. What's going on? And they didn't understand. They didn't get that they were safe. They were safe when the storm was raging because they had Jesus in the vessel with them. They had the God of the storm in the boat with them. And so we've seen them in trouble in a boat with Christ. This is a little bit different, though. They have been on the other side. They have fed the 5,000. But remember, before they fed the 5,000, it said that they were weary and they crossed over because they were looking for uh, an isolated place to rest. But the people followed them, and when they got off the boat with Jesus, there were these throngs of people by the thousands, again, that had great needs. And so Jesus, having compassion on them, and ultimately, as we saw in his disciples, rather than giving them a place of rest... He sends them right back into ministry. He says, "Let's feed them," and he does the miraculous feeding with the, uh, the the loaves of bread and the two pieces of fish. But so, don't forget then that they're still weary. Okay, so so Jesus sends them away on a boat. It says, um, "To the other side." While well, I sent the multitude away, look at look at verse forty-five. He sends them away on a boat. To cross over to the other side of Bethsaida but then here, while he sent the multitude away, so he sends them away on a boat, and he also sends the people home. So you gotta you gotta think, if you're the disciples, that you're probably uh, really excited that now you're going to get your rest. You know that, that Jesus is finally coming good on his promise that he's finally going to deliver them to a place of rest and peace, and they're going to get to chill out a little bit and they're going to get to relax a little bit. And so he sends them out onto this boat, but that is not that is not what happened. You know, They think they've been on the mountaintop and they're just going to continue to coast there. They're going to get the rest that they need. Jesus is going to retire and pray. They're going to retire on the boat and rest. Jesus sends them out on this boat, and then the storm comes right back up. We know that because a storm arises, and when he sees them from the side, they are straining at rowing. Well, if, if it's the fourth watch of the night, as we're told in the text, and that would be Probably somewhere around 3 in the morning or just after, maybe 3 to 5 or 3 to 6. What we know is it would have been pitch black dark. So that if you're straining at rowing in the middle of the night in the pitch black dark, it's only because uh, you're pretty scared and nervous about the situation that you're in. Where were they going? They were rowing and straining, frantically trying to get back to the safety of the shore. So get, get the picture here. They're tired. They cross over to rest. They cannot rest. Jesus causes them and through them does this ministry of feeding all these people. So they're still tired. He sends the people away. He commands his disciples to get into a boat and sends them out. And in their mind, they are finally going to get the rest they need. And because they have now done exactly what Jesus told them to do again and again and again, they are in the middle of deep trouble. Don't miss that. Remember, we saw that when he told them to cross over the Sea of Galilee the first time, when he was asleep in the bottom of the boat, when the great storm arose. He was sleeping, and they were freaking out because they were, thought they were going to die. They were imminently perishing. Why were they there? Because Jesus commanded that they get on a boat and go to the other side. Again, they've done exactly what Jesus has commanded them to do, as they have sought rest from him, and he has delivered them right back into the storm. So that brings us back to what I said a moment ago. The, the question is, isn't it also our experience, the question though is why, that we seem to go from the mountaintop in quick fashion down to the valley? Have you ever wondered why can't we just stay on the mountaintop for a little while? And, and sometimes in God's providence we do, but that's not the normal course of the Christian life. The normal course of the Christian life is that we get down into the midst of the deep dark valley and then the Lord, our Savior, redeems and restores and brings about salvation and joy, redemption and brings us back to the mountaintop where we worship and thank Him and then casts us right back down into the valley. And in God's providence, there is this ebb and flow. There is this up and down to the Christian life as we walk with Christ and His disciples are experiencing just that same issue. They are no doubt frustrated at this point, And, you know, maybe we can sympathize with them a little bit. Uh, the real problem, however, is that they simply don't get it. Jesus has been trying to show them that he has much more for them and that he is, much, he is interested for them in much more than simply their rest. And simply their physical well-being and simply their temporal happiness and continuing on the mountaintop with no problems. Because, see, if they continued on the mountaintop, if they stayed where he was doing the miracles and feeding them and everybody else and there were no problems and there were no storms on the sea and there were no boats that were sinking, then they would never have occasion to trust him and to learn who he is. What have we seen in the gospel of Mark? That it's a book about who is Jesus Thus far, the only characters in the text that seem to understand who Jesus is are the demons. Which is very interesting, but they have the best theology in all of the book. And even to this point, it's sort of amazing that all that they've seen and all that they have heard and all that they've experienced with Christ, the great miracles, they simply still don't understand they just don't get it. We, we read, as we'll pick back up later, down in verse 52. They didn't even understand about the loaves. They were astonished and amazed, as they are with this story. But what does it say? They had not understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. They, they were blind. You know, that, that they didn't get it. They, they did not understand what Jesus was coming to do. And so this is a story, then, about how he's going to try to help show them. And, and how he's going to try to help show that. So the first thing is, Jesus sends his disciples away on a boat, and according to his command, they find themselves in deep trouble. Secondly, the second thing we see in this story, Jesus secludes himself on a mountain to pray. So the difference then in this text, in the last story of trouble on the sea, is that Jesus does not get in the boat with them. Jesus sends them out, remember just a few verses ago, he sent them out two by two into the surrounding regions to minister the gospel, to tell all about who he was in his ministry, to, to tell about Christ and salvation, that the kingdom of God has come. Now he's sending them out on this boat, but he doesn't go with them. It says in the text that he retired to the mountain to pray, verse 46, and when he sent them away, that's the multitude and the disciples away on the boat, he departed to the mountain to pray. And that's where he sees them. They're out in the middle of the sea. Evidently, they weren't too far from shore. They were rowing, which seems to, they seem to think they could row right back to shore. And he is also able to see them in verse, 40, uh, verse 48. Then he saw them straining uh, at rowing, for the wind was great against them. So Jesus sends him out on the boat, but he secludes himself off to a mountain to pray. Jesus needs to pray? Have you ever thought of this? Why in the world does the Son of God, God in the flesh, the beginning and the end, right? What in the world does he need to pray for? We see Jesus praying time and time and time again. Well, I think on the one hand, there are several things we learn from Jesus's habitual life of prayer. The first is it's an expression of his humanity, that there is this, Divine dichotomy that he is fully God and fully man, that he rests and he eats and he hungers. And on on his human side, he sorrows and he needs. And so where does he find those needs most intimately and deeply met in the bosom of his father? He goes to him and he brings his petitions to him and he requests things of him. That's very interesting to me about Jesus. I mean, even on the way to the cross, as he His Godness knew that He was headed there and He knew what was coming. And what does He do? In the midst of His sorrow and grief and difficulty and pain and and need, He goes to God His Father and He beseeches Him, Lord, if there is any way that this can be done other than this, let this cup pass from me. He, he, he pleads with God and he begs him when he has need and he brings those problems to him. So I think we start to learn something about the nature of Christ as Jesus is trying, I think, to show that to them as well as to us. We see an expression of his humanity. But we also then see, as I've alluded to, an expression of deep love for and devotion to his Father God. Jesus has made clear that he is here only to do the will of the one who sent him. Jesus is not on his own agenda, though it would be fine. He's God. But in so much as there is separation of God the Father and God the Son, the Son is wholly in love and completely and supremely devoted to God the Father. And it becomes an example for us to follow. Where do we go in the greatest valleys? Where do we go in the deepest need? Where do we go in the most... substantial sorrow we, we go we go to God in prayer. So it's an expression of his humanity, his deep love for and devotion to his Father God. The question then is, what in the world was he praying for? This is where I think it gets really interesting. He sends the disciples off in a boat. He retires onto the side of the mountain on the shore side to pray, to a departed place to pray. What in the world was he praying for? He, he didn't need to pray, he was God. He had need of nothing. God gave him everything that he needed. He He could have done anything that he wanted as has been evident in the miracles that he's done and as is going to be evident in the miracle that he's fixing to do. What is he praying for? Well, I think at least, maybe though not only, but I think that at least certainly he was praying for them. I think he was praying that they would know him. How frustrated Christ must have been as he broke five loaves and two fish to feed thousands upon thousands. And he knew in his heart that the disciples As verse 52 tells us, still we're hardened and blind. How frustrating it must have been for him. And so what does he do? I think that he gets on his face, secluded and alone before God his Father, and he pleads with God to open their eyes, to open their hearts, to reveal himself to them in a special and a unique way that they would know him, that they would see him as he is, that they would believe in and trust in him. I think Jesus desperately longs for his disciples to get it. Secondly, I think that he was praying that they would recognize him. In just a few moments, we're going to see that he walks out onto the water to do this unbelievable expression of miraculous divinity. And, and we're going to see that they don't even recognize who it is. And I, I think that he's praying that they would recognize him. But, but, but then thirdly, I think that he was also praying, even just physically, practically, temporally, that God would keep them safe in the storm that he knew was there. See, Jesus, just as in the first time, he sent them off into the storm, not because he had no idea the storm was coming. In his providence, he plans the storm to give them teaching opportunities to learn to trust him. But I think that Jesus cares enough for them that even though he knows the storm is coming and he sends them off into the boat in the midst of the storm, I think he retires to the side of the mountain, isolated and alone with God, to pray that, yes, God, I mean, you can almost hear him. Let the waves pound the boat. Let, 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 the, let the wind cover them. Let the boat be battered and torn, but just keep them safe. Wet and weary, but keep them safe. You can, almost, you can almost get a sense of what's going on here, friends. Aren't you thankful? I mean, this is the season of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Aren't you thankful that when Jesus sends us, down off the mountain and onto the boat and into the storm, when he sends us from the mountaintop in a moment's notice into the deepest valley, and when we cannot see him and when we do not feel that he is with us, isn't it encouraging to know that he is alone on the shore watching us and interceding for us? See, the disciples, again, think that Jesus just doesn't care. What are you doing? Do you not care that we are perishing? Frantically rowing to get to the side of the boat because, oh no, what are we going to do? And they have continued to miss it. Jesus sends them off on the boat into the heart of the storm. And then, it, who would you rather have praying for you? And then he goes alone to do what only he can to go before God his Father on their behalf and intercede for them. There is no greater reality in my life for which I am more thankful than the intercession of my Savior Jesus. So he sends them on a boat, out and away. He secludes himself on a mountain to pray. Thirdly, he responds to their need. Uh I love when Jesus, in the midst of our uh their unbelief and their blindness, he doesn't just drop his holy hammer of judgment upon them. Uh as he does with the Pharisees, because keep in mind that the blindness spoken of here and the blindness spoken of about the Pharisees are different types of blindness. We know that simply because of the way that Jesus deals with the blindness. Jesus, in his compassion and mercy and love for them, is going to reach them in their greatest point of weakness, in the midst of their in the midst of their blindness. Look at, look at what he does. Uh, full of grace and mercy and patience with their hard-heartedness and with their stupidity and with their unwillingness to see and get it, he walks on the water to retrieve them. And he goes out into the midst of the storm and he walks up alongside the boat and says, Hey guys, I'm here. And then he crawls into the boat in the midst of these frantically fearing, pathetic men And he turns and he says to the wind and to the waves, Be still. And in a moment, it all stops and they are restored to safety. He goes out to them in their time of unbelief, in their time of faithlessness. He goes to them, they do not come to him. When they are not believing, he still seeks them out. He pursues them and he hunts them down. He retrieves them from their unbelief and gives them what they need to trust him and to believe in him. And guys, that is great news for me and you because I know that if you're anything like me, your life is characterized by extreme instances of unbelief and faithlessness where we turn away from God because of the terrible things we think he's brought into our life and we are bitter and we hate him because we don't, like the disciples, we just don't get it. We think that if he loved us, he would not bring these things into our life. We think that if he cared about us, he would keep us on top of the mountain forever. And we fail to see that he plunges us down into the valley and retires to the side of the water to pray for us so that he can teach us about who he is. And that's what he's doing with these disciples. And in the midst of their faithlessness, in their time of unbelief, he goes to them to deliver them. Not that they were ever in trouble. I mean, if Jesus is on the side of the water in eyeshot praying for you, are you really in that big of a problem? (laughs) No. Guys, and Jesus stands before God ever interceding for us moment by moment and day by day. Which means no matter how great the storm in your life seems this morning, you are not in trouble. I know, I know that it can feel different. But let this story encourage you that you're not in trouble. But even when you think you are, just to show you that you're not, he will come to you and he will meet your physical and your psychological needs often. Not always. It's wonderful. It's wonderful, isn't it, that he cares enough about our frantic fear to walk out on the water, to to meet us there in our unbelief and to give us whatever it is that we need to trust him and to stop the storm, to stop the storm. But the question then is it is wonderful. Yes. But is that it? Is that all Jesus does in this text? Is that all we're supposed to learn? This sort of heartwarming truth that Jesus will walk on the water from time to time. He will come out to meet our physical needs. I'm afraid not. Jesus responds to their need, yes. But as I've already alluded to time and again in this message, more importantly, in doing so, he reveals his nature to them. In going to them, he is going with grace, to give them a glimpse of His glory and His person. He is going to show them His divinity. So that for the first time in the story that we've been reading, and all of the experiences with the disciples we've seen, maybe not the very first time, but for the first time in in their life together as a small band of believers and as a group, for the first time they are going to see more than merely expressions of his divinity. What have they seen so far? They've seen him break the loaves and and, and make it miraculously go. They've seen people let down from the roof that could not walk the lame, and they were told to get up off their mat. They've seen the leper healed. They've seen the demoniac healed. They've seen expressions so that they stand back as they did the last time he calmed the storm and said, who is this that even the wind and the waves must listen to the sound of his voice. They stand back and marvel and say, who is this? They've seen the expressions of who he is, but they've never actually seen him as he is. It's different, and I'm going to show you that. And in doing this act of grace and mercy and walking out onto the water to reveal his nature to them, for the first time they are going to be given a glimpse of his divinity. They will see him revealed In much greater fullness, they will see him as he is. The first aspect that we know about that is because he walks on the water. That's pretty divine. Only God can do that. I learned as I was studying for this, I did not know, that in ancient Egypt, the word for impossible is the same word for two feet of water. You know why? Because you can't walk in two feet of water, on, on top of it anyway. You can't be perceived in two feet of water to be standing on top of it. So, so that was literally the term they used for impossible. Because everyone that's ever existed in the realm of, of, of laws and physics and earth, we all know that you cannot walk on the water. You cannot stand on the water. Some things float. But we don't. We don't, we don't. Nobody walks on the water. Only God can do that. He's showing them his, his, his divinity. Secondly, he stops the storm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to breeze through the, most of these. We've seen these before. He, he stops the storm. Well, only God can do that, right? Who is this that the wind and waves must obey his voice? He he gets in the boat and he says, be still, and it all stops. Notice this, though. It's not until after he climbs in the boat that he stops the storm. We, We don't have time to parse all that out, but isn't that interesting? As he was on the side praying, certainly he would have probably been being rained on as well. He would have felt the wind blowing. He was able to see them, so he wasn't too far. They're out. He could have just thought it. He could have just done this from the shore. I don't know what he did. He could have done anything he wanted, but he walks on water first, and then he walks out of the boat. The waves are still crashing around. They are still, the storm is still raging, and it's not until after he gets in the boat. Guys, don't be surprised if Jesus leaves us in the storm for a while. I I mean, practically speaking, I mean, even if he's going to. He doesn't always ever calm the storm. I and mean, the, only, the only promise we have of him, normative promise for all time that he's going to calm the storm is when he comes back to deliver us once and for all time in eternity. The storm may rage from now till death, but eventually friends, Jesus is going to get in the boat and he's going to calm the storm. It will happen, but, but notice that anyway, at least in passing that it's not until after it gets in the boat, but he does calm the storm. Only God can do that. But then notice this. This is one of the most important parts of this text. I didn't write my verse down. Let me find it. Here we go. Look at, look at verse uh, the, the latter part of verse 48. Um, it says, He saw them straining and rowing. He saw the wind was against them. Here it is. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Have you ever noticed that in this text before? What in the world is going, why would he have passed them by? It literally means that he desired to come beside them to pass beside them. If you rack your brain and you think, do do we, and especially these disciples, who at least, you know, let's not give them too hard of a time about their unbelief. Ours is much worse, right? They did not have the New Testament. The cross had not yet come. They they are in an infant stage of the, the, the inauguration of God's kingdom. So, I mean, let's not be too hard on them. But at this infant stage of, Christ and his ministry and, and their belief and understanding of who he is. He is going to pass them by. And, and though they would not have had the New Testament, they most certainly would have known more intimately than you and I ever could. They would have known a great deal about the Old Testament. If you rack your brain and you think, can you think of any times in the Old Testament where God has passed by people? I saw someone mouth Moses, Elijah at Mount Horeb. Let's let's take the example. What happened at Mount Sinai, Exodus 33, with Moses? Moses goes up onto the mountain, and it is the place where God himself is going to reveal himself such that Moses will never be the same reveal Himself to His people in a new and a unique and in a special and a miraculous and a mighty way. It is going to be God's self-revelation. But no one can see God and live in their humanity and in their sinfulness. So what what does God do? He hides Him in the cleft of the rock. He places His divine hand over the opening so that as the glory of God passed by Him, He was able to get just a glimpse of, of the brightness, of the glory of God, and in, in just receiving the glimpse, he has so experienced the person and the, the working and the spirit of God personally that he comes down off the mountain and his face is glowing. Elijah at Mount Horeb. So let's read back then into the New Testament, what is Jesus doing Jesus is on a mission to reveal himself to the disciples in a new and in a special way. And he walks on the water and he, and he calms the storm, but he intends to pass beside them. A lot of people say that he was just testing to see if they would recognize him. And I, I think maybe that's part of it, but I think, that, I think that falls woefully short. Think about this again. It was the fourth watch of the night. Three o'clock in the morning, it's dark. Out on the sea, there's no street lights. Not that they had him in that day. It was dark. So here's my question how did they see him? I think he was glowing. I don't know, and I don't want to read too much into it. But what I know is. That in some special, miraculous way, in order not just to show them the expressions of his divinity, Jesus is going to pass by them and is going to give them a glimpse of his glory. And how do we know that? Because then look at what he says. He steps onto the boat and he says, Be of good courage. Do not fear. It is I. Does that also sound familiar to you? What did God say to Moses when his glory passed by? And he gave him his marching orders to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And what did he tell him to tell him? Tell him to tell him. What did he tell Moses to tell Pharaoh? He said, tell them, I am sent you. This is the self-revelation of God who chooses his own name and how he is going to... Reveal himself to his people in a supernatural way. And he goes by the personal name. I am who I am. And literally Jesus is saying to them, it is I, I am. I'm not just your buddy. I'm not just the son of God. But I'm going to show you the glory of God. And I'm going to give you a glimpse of who I am. And I am he. Why is that important, guys? Because it is only the I am that can change who we are. And if Jesus was not him, then Jesus was a nobody. And, and so he walks out on the water, I think probably glowing in the night. And in grace and mercy in the midst of their unbelief, I think he passes by the disciples And gives them but a glimpse of the glory he has showed them through his miracles. And he says, It is I. I am. Now, in conclusion, as I have said already to this point, let me check my time. We're doing great. The sad reality is the disciples did not get it, they still were struggling. Don't don't be too hard on them. Guys, many of us in this room are still struggling. Let's just be honest many of us have have nominal affections for Jesus many of us have nominal convictions and 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 faithfulness toward God and his people and his worship and his word we are more concerned with with football stats and fantasy leagues and deer and antlers and hobbies and cars and jobs and families and children and some of those things, all of those things are wonderful things. But we are so consumed with all of those other things that we have very limited time in our life for the Lord. Because, see, many of us still just don't get it. We don't get that He is. We don't get that He's really God. That it's really a big deal. That he's really the supreme ruler of the universe. And that he gives us glimpses of his glory time and time again. Trying to teach us in our unbelief and in our faithlessness. Who he is. Calling us to repentance. Calling us to belief. Calling us to join and to be a part of his kingdom. And yet we stand obstinate unbelieving and our blindness is worse than theirs they were still blind they still struggled to believe but so do we and we have far more to understand we have been given far more in god's providence on this side of the cross having been given the new testament and the completion of the scriptures we've been given far more and and even that the testimony over thousands of years of the church we've been given far more than they have so let's not be too hard on them but they don't they don't believe but it's not all bad news let me give you this conclusion from verse fifty, take heed to what what Jesus tells them, guys. I know that I know that many of your lives are in shambles in many ways, and I know that that we struggle with depression and with difficulty and with sadness and with bitterness and with history and issues with uh, with parent problems and with child problems and uh, with with baggage. Listen to the words of Christ to his disciples in the midst of their unbelief and the great storm. He gets on the boat and he says, be of good cheer. Take heart. Take heart. For I am with you. I'm here. Do not be afraid. And let me simply encourage you guys this morning. Don't don't lose heart and, and don't be afraid. Think about the song. I told Andy the song was so appropriate. It's why we read Isaiah 43. What did we sing? That he is the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior. See see a proclamation in those verses of who he really is and really trying to understand those glimpses of his glory that we've been given. I have called you by name and you are mine. And then, what does it say in Isaiah 43? The waves will not overcome you. The disciples could testify to that. For I am with you. The fires will not be too hot for you. For I am with you. I have redeemed you. For I am your God. So, guys, as we close this morning, take courage. In this season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, be thankful in the midst of great difficulty. As we are plunged from the mountains down into the valleys, Go joyfully, unafraid that Jesus, the Lord God Almighty is with you. Be thankful that he intercedes for you as in the midst of the storm and that he will ultimately come alongside us even if it takes walking on water to comfort and to redeem and to restore us, to deliver us. Will you trust him? Will you trust him or will you be hardened? and blind to the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that in the midst of our unbelief, while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sin, that you passed by us and revealed yourself to us and helped us to feel to experience not just expressions of who you are, but to see you as you are, that you've called us to repentance, that you've placed faith in our hearts, that you've given us belief. Lord, I pray that every person in this room would have that same experience. Lord, Lord, that they would see, that they would be given ears to hear, that they would understand that they would get it. Lord, thank you that you intercede for us. That even when we can't see you, when you're not in the boat, and even when we can't feel your presence with us, help us to believe that you're over on the shore, interceding on our behalf, ever praying for us. Lord, we pray that we would know you. We pray that we would see you. And we pray that those things would encourage us to believe and to trust in you. For you are the king. May we be pleased to be your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.